You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture today is from 1 Kings 17, 8 to 24. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did was not the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him and he received. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sam. Again, if you were just dropping off your kids, that was 1 Kings 17, verses 8 through 24. It's, it would be very helpful for the sermon if you have it in front of you, even if it's through your phone. Let me pray, though. Lord, we give you thanks 
uh, for these stories of old, which have been told by many generations, stories which you saw fit to be left in your holy word. And we pray now as we look at this first story in the ministry of the prophet Elijah, you would help us through the ministry of Elijah to glorify your name and to see your son Jesus Christ and his work for us in a new light that we might rightly worship him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, last week, the Toronto Sun ran an article. I promise I don't read the Toronto Sun regularly, but um, it was picked up all over Twitter. The article was entitled, Canada Needs a Single National Identity. And the essay was actually uh, submitted by a Torontonian, a U of Toronto political science grad named Arwan Singh. And the essay had actually won um, the McDonald Laurier Institute's Speak for Ourselves essay competition. Some think tank in Ottawa uh, called for, for essays from students. And this essay actually won, and so then the Toronto Sun ran the piece. And the author in this particular piece argued that Canada has actually never had the courage to have a single national identity. Rather, they've always uh, sort of enshrined and depended upon this two-founding nation identity, the French heritage and history and the English heritage and history, making this Canada that we know today. And the author of this essay argued that this two-founding nations theory has greatly handicapped minority Canadians and consigned minority Canadians to second-class citizenship. The author writes, no amount of diversity, equity, or inclusion will make a difference in the lives of visible minorities as long as this theory persists. His solution? Canada must join other nation-states in embracing one pluralist identity, where people are treated as individuals. He argued, uh, Singh argued towards the end of the essay, Canada has a moral duty to realize this vision. Now, the only reason I learned about this essay is it kind of blew up on Twitter amongst uh, Quebecois Canadians, French Canadians. Uh, the Francophone Canadians felt like this was a prophecy, and they figured, they saw this as sort of symbolizing where history is headed. Either they separate as a nation and secuse, uh, secure their future as French-speaking people, or they merge and disappear with a wider Canadian identity. And I thought about writing a response actually to this essay as it relates to how religion is going to bear in the future of Canada. How in the world is religion going to move forward in this vastly multicultural, pluralistic society uh, that we had found? And how do we live as followers of the resurrected Jesus in a society that has deep and unresolved conflict around what it means to be a country, what the common good is, and what it means to flourish? It seems to me, at least in our time, the secularism that was promoted in the 60s, this sort of uh, put a firewall between your religious beliefs and your public persona, it seems to me that the majority of Canadian culture has seen that as naive and is looking for a new way forward to be a more pluralistic uh, society. And it seems likely that we now live in a world where your kids are going to be allowed during show and tell to bring their Bible and show forth their religious devotion. They're not going to be told to keep that on the sidelines, but they're also going to be told that they need to say uh, Eid Mubarak and participate or at least celebrate Ramadan in a slight way with some of their classmates. Now, I chose not to respond to the article. I had other things going on, and I realized I wasn't smart enough to enter into these kind of public debates that I was going to lose. Um, but... I couldn't help but think this. What in the world is discipleship going to look like in the age of pluralism? 
Whether you agree with the author's thesis or not that we need a single national identity, the reality is this is where the majority of people are pushing. That we have to have some sort of uh, acceptance of all, multiculturalism, pluralism. And I actually think Christianity has some compatibility in this particular world. But what does discipleship look like in this world? How do people who believe in the resurrection purport that we are going to coexist with people who have genuine differences with us without suppressing or minimizing our firmly held convictions? What is discipleship going to look like in this world, in this country where this debate is going back and forth? And I couldn't help but hope that discipleship must mean we have some kind of proper confidence, a confidence that doesn't make us arrogant and it allows us to exhibit humility and patience with others but a confidence that also promotes a tolerance that is rooted in love, but not in a moral relativism. Whatever discipleship looks like in this pluralistic world, it's going to have to include some type of proper confidence that allows us to enter into the public sphere with some measure of humility and patience. Well, we're starting a new sermon series looking at the life of the prophet Elijah and Elijah in First and Second Kings. And God's nation at this time is greatly divided. There's been a civil war where 10 tribes have started another nation separate from 12 tribes. We now have the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom often shorthanded referred to as Israel. But also at the time in which Elijah and Elijah are prophesying, there is vast pluralism taking over in the average life of an Israelite. There's a fight for dominance in the public square. There's a theory, especially from the kings that we read in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, that the God of Israel is not going to provide and protect and provide a way forward for the kingdom of the north. And so they dip in and grab the gods of foreign nations, especially worshiping Baal. And it's not as though they mandated exclusive worship to Baal, or, and, and, and most of the kings sort of permitted it and allowed it to take place. But all of a sudden, Israel, this land that God had set apart, this land that he had prepared for a people that he rescued from slavery, this land where he made himself known in a temple, was now a land of pluralism, not altogether different than the world that we walk into. How are we to live in a pluralistic age? I think the ministry of Elijah and Elijah is going to give us some wisdom. And in this first passage, I think in the age of pluralism, this passage is going to show us the way we need to live by the very word of God. So here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at the power of the word of God in a pluralistic age. And then I want to look at the perplexity of living by the word of God in a pluralistic age. So first, the power of the Word of God in a pluralistic age. I argue that there's a type of, I, I just briefly said, there's a type of pluralism that exists in the nation of Israel at this time. What is, exactly does it look like? Well, if you have your Bible open and you look at chapter 16 or even scroll up to chapter 16, you'll see that the king at the time of the ministry of Elijah's name is Ahab. And for politically expedient reasons, he marries a woman named Jezebel. Now, if anyone ever calls you a Jezebel, ladies, it's not a good thing. <laughs> Our culture continues to become ignorant of the Bible, but if you say she's a real Jezebel, not a compliment. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon, and she was very, very committed to the worshiping of the gods of her land, the god Baal. In verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 33, we read that Ahab did more to provoke the god of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Not the compliment you want to find about yourself in the Bible. He begins to introduce and even encourage the worship of the god Baal, who was a fertility god. 
Baal would, would, you would call out to Baal and he would, he would send rain upon the lands. He was the God who allowed the crops to grow. Uh, this was sort of his ability, his power, his purview. And as you offered to him proper worship, he saw the worship and responded by sending rains upon the lands. And so now the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who rescued his people from Israel, the God who had brought them into the promised land, the God who used them to uproot the worship of these false gods like Baal, that God is no longer being worshipped properly and with loyalty in Israel. And in fact, king, wicked King Ahab is now in this repaganization program to take the weeds which had been uprooted and plant them back into the land. And so what does God do? He, rise, he raises up these prophets. Well, what is a prophet? I, I tell you the best way to think about a prophet is to think of them as a lawyer. They're taking the words that God had written to his people and they're coming to the kings whose duty was to live through and live up to this world and they're laying lawsuits against the king. They're saying to the king, you violated your treaty with God. You went behind his back and made a treaty with other gods and so because of that, when you agreed to the terms of the contract, the curses of the contract are going to come on you and they're going to come on your land. This is essentially what the prophet, prophet's role is in the Bible. Now, in chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, which weren't listed in your bulletin and wouldn't have been listed in your bulletin even if it was properly, if I gave the right text uh, earlier in the week, Elijah's ministry starts by him going to Ahab, coming right up to Ahab, the highest power of the day, and saying, it will not rain nor will dew be found on your land until I say so. This is Elijah's first sort of uh, ministry moment when he stands in front of a crowd and wants to share about what God is doing in his heart and the power of his ministry. He said, well, the Lord has called me to go to Ahab and tell him there will be no rain. After Elijah gives this word of prophecy to King Ahab, he has to leave, presumably, because his life is under threat. We'll learn that in later chapters. And Elijah is forced to, to flee to a brook. And there at this brook, at this, at this trickling of water, he's fed miraculously by ravens. The ravens bring him uh, morning and evening. They bring him bread and meat. I don't know what kind of meat it was. I wouldn't have asked. I would have made sure I ordered it well done, despite my disdain of well done meat. A raven miraculously feeds Elijah, and he finds water from this particular book, brook just outside of the, the Holy Land. But the well dries up, the water dries up, and in verse 8, where our particular passage this morning kicks off, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah again, and he says, go to Zarephath, which is in Sidon. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but I said, wicked Jezebel, do you remember her father where he was the king? He was the king of Sidon. And the Lord is now saying to his prophet, go to the belly of the beast. Go right to the heart of that worship in Baal. And what do we read? We read that Elijah hears the word of God, and he leaves fully the holy land. He's no longer in the land that was once deemed holy. He's exiled. He's outside of Israel. And what does he find? What does he see? He finds that God's power is not thwarted by national boundaries. That God is true to his word, whether he's in Sidon or whether he is in Jerusalem. The same God who fed him by the ravens now provides for him something more absurd than ravens feeding you. And that is a widow. And not only is it just a widow who would have been deemed helpless in society, who would have been extremely vulnerable, unable to own property, this is a widow of no financial means. She's collecting sticks 
because she needs to make her last meal for her and her son. So now we have this widow in the land of Sidon, certainly someone who was not worshiping the God of Israel. The Lord tells Elijah, go to her and I will take care of you through her. I will feed you through her. This is utterly absurd, and this is exactly what happens. The kings of Israel might not observe the laws, might not properly be loyal to the God of Israel. And it might be because of the ministry of one woman from Sidon that the kings of Israel are now more committed to Baal worship than ever. But our Lord has a sense of humor. And there is one woman in Sidon, a widow who's at the end of her life, that God uses to provide for Elijah. And he provides for him miraculously again. Look at verse 14, if you have it. For thus says, says the Lord, the God of Israel, your jar of flour won't be spent, nor your oil run dry until it rains. It's interesting. I don't know about you, but if I was living and a foreign prophet came to me and said, uh, I know you're at your last meal, but please give it to me. But I promise my God will replenish your flour and replenish your oil. That is a hard word to believe. You know why? Because if the prophet's telling the truth, hooray, you can eat longer. If he's lying, how are you going to do anything about it? You're dead. This is your last meal. And yet, what does the widow do? She's provoked. I don't know why. But she exhibits some kind of faith, some kind of confidence in the words of the prophet, and she takes him at his word, and she provides food for Elijah. There, in the presence of Elijah's enemies, God spreads out a table, and she is miraculously fed. Now listen, it's not like she's fed with a Costco-sized lump of flour and oil. It's a typical miracle of our Lord. She makes the bread, uses the oil, watches the flour dwindle to what looks like the end, all to open the cupboard again and to find it each morning refilled. His mercies are new every morning over and over and over again. Now, what do we learn from this? I've, I've tried my best to share the story with you in some detail. What do we learn, especially what does it mean for us as people trying to exhibit faith in the resurrected Jesus in a pluralistic age? Well, what we learn is this, that we shouldn't be surprised to find that God's word shows forth itself to be most true in the most desperate of situations. This is certainly what we learn. God's word shows itself to be most true in the most desperate of situations. Listen, Elijah is ministering in a time when God's people are in such a tailspin. The church, so to speak, in Elijah's age is in such a state of terminal decline. Those who might have faith in the God of Israel, their faith has grown cold and stale and impure. But what does Elijah do? He takes God at his word. He takes God's word and brings it and speaks it to the halls of power. How did Elijah know a drought was going to come? How did he know to say this to the king? He knew it because he was a man of God's word. He knew Deuteronomy 11 made very clear that when God's people obeyed the commandments, rain would come upon the land. But when they worshipped idols and failed to obey the commandments, the Lord would shut up the heavens and a drought would come on the land. Elijah was a man who lived by God's word, even when, especially when, it felt like God's word had no power. Maybe I'll say it this way. He was a man deeply committed to God's word when it felt like God's word wasn't working. God's word was Elijah's only hope during an age of pluralism, and it's our only hope today as well. 
The church does feel like it's in some sort of state of decline that looks like it may be terminal, barring some sort of solution from immigration. Church attendance is certainly in decline. Mainline churches are closing each week. How do we maintain faith in this pluralistic age where it feels like even those in our communities who have obedience to Christ have an impure and cold and and conflicted obedience to Christ, a compromised obedience to Christ? It looks like trusting God at his word, holding God to his promises even when it's hard, and knowing full and well that God's word will show up in power most clearly when we are in our most desperate of situation. If God says it, we do it, no matter how hard it is. This is the first lesson. I'm not saying it was easy for Elijah to obey God's word, and it probably became easier for Elijah to obey God's word when he started to see the jar miraculously filled with flour and oil. These confirmations certainly had a benefit. But don't forget, Elijah is holding to God's word during a dry time. He's holding to God's word and trusting God's word even when it seems impossible. And though he goes and speaks to the the king and says, a drought's coming, he then goes to this brook to have his water. The ravens feed him by meat meat and bread. But what happens? Even Even that stream eventually dries up. What does Elijah do when the stream dries up? Oh, Lord, what are you doing? We kind of had a good arrangement here. I talk about the drought, but you provide with me this stream. This is perfect. He still takes God at his word. He goes to find the widow that is going to sustain him. How are, how, what is proper confidence going to look like in a pluralistic age? It's going to look like confidence in God's word. That what he says is true. When we read that he wins, his enemies won't prevail, and justice won't flourish forever. These, this is true, and we will believe it, and we will hold to it, and we will trust it. We will say he's the king over all other kings, no matter what anybody says, no matter what anyone Uh, thinks he will win his enemies will not prevail what does it mean to live out our faith in a pluralistic age it means trusting God at his word even when it feels like his word might not be working and it means having a deep confidence that God's word will show up in power when we find ourselves in the most desperate of situations so this is the the power of God's word in a pluralistic age let's let me just we spend a little time talking about the perplexity of living by God's word in a pluralistic age because this passage I hope you're able to under, uh, remember what is read, or I hope you have it before you. There's sort of three miracles. There's this, the drought and Elijah being uh, miraculously fed. There's then uh, him being fed by the widow miraculously after he has to leave and go to this land of Sidon. And now there's a third miracle at the end, and it should be the most jarring, and it should be the most captivating, and it is a very perplexing miracle because does Elijah die in the drought? No, the ravens provide bread for him and meets, and he has water, and he's sustained. Does he die when he goes to Sidon and meets the widow? No. The Lord provides bread for him. The Lord provides for him uh, through this jar of flour and this oil that never seems to go away. But the big, the big cliffhanger in this passage is that the widow, the widow at great expense to herself and at great risk to her life, Believed God when it all altogether all seemed absurd. Trusted the word of God's servant Elijah. And what happens to the widow? What happens to her most prized possession? The person she woke up and lived for every morning. What happens to him? Her son dies. We don't know much about her son, but we know he was small enough that she could hold him in her arms. Her son is dead. Here's the lesson. Obedience to God in the present won't imply an easy future. 
Obedience to God in the present doesn't imply an easy future. There's a vast difference between saying God works out his plans perfectly and God works out his plans neatly as I see it. If you haven't learned this lesson, you better learn it soon. The widow of Zarephath assumes that her son dies. Why? You can see it in verse 18. She assumes her son is dead because of her sins. She assumed her son had to die because of her unfaithfulness. She assumed she must be doing something wrong. Her sins have found her out. Therefore, God took her only son from her. Friends, this isn't the only time in the Bible where people whose faith seems so fragile, so, so profoundly fragile, where they make a, a, a bold pronouncement of their faith, and then trial upon trial dashes upon them. Think of God's people. Think of Joseph. He interprets a dream while he's in jail. He should get out of jail. The hope of getting out of jail gets dashed. Think of God's people exiled from Egypt. They're back up to the Red Sea. They trusted the Lord. They left Egypt. They're pinned in against the Red Sea. They have no hope of survival. Think of the psalmist, Psalm 2. Oh Lord, you lift me up, but why have you cast me aside? Think of the disciples. The Lord tells them to go out into the boat and the storm. The Lord goes to take a nap, and they're nearly overtaken by a storm. Obedience in the present does not imply ease in the future. And this is always true, but I dare say it is especially true if you're going to live by God's word in a pluralistic age. Maybe I could quickly illustrate it this way. I've been coaching girls soccer for some time. And let me tell you, um, when you're around a bunch of, you know, 10-year-old girls, and you, I, mean, I played soccer quite a bit in my life, you feel pretty confident in your skills, actually. And to be honest, over time, I was getting more and more confident. I could shoot pretty hard. Uh, I, these girls could never really take the ball from me. I could juggle more than everybody else. I was pretty high on my horse, so to speak, about my skills in soccer. But, but what happened when Pastor Linden got for us a free soccer field to play on Thursday nights, and all of a sudden, a bunch of 24-year-old kids with no body fat that had lateral movement of a superstar started coming out to play? What did I learn? I learned that my skills weren't as good as I thought. Previously, if you had asked, are you good at soccer? I'd say, well, I mean, I don't want to be bragging or anything, but not bad. You should see me with 10-year-olds. Um, they don't get the ball. Like, I mean, that's all I know. But now if you were to ask me, I'd say, no, I've gotten older. <laughs> I've gotten heavier. <laughs> I'm not as nimble as I once was. I, my shots aren't as accurate as they once were. Now, why do I share this? It took great testing for me to have a, a better self-awareness of where I was at. And, and to better evaluate who I was and where I was as a soccer player. And so also, the Lord is going to these new converts, in this case, a widow, the widow of Zarephath. And he is throwing her into the hardest game she will ever play. She's not practicing with 10-year-olds anymore. Now, all of a sudden, she's in the real thing. And what does she learn? She learns that she doesn't have a deep enough, a rooted enough faith to trust the Lord even through this trial. She carries her boy, and what does Elijah say? He says, give me the boy. How does Elijah respond? He carries the boy up to his room, and does he say, Oh, Lord, you're the God of the resurrection. I know what you're about to do. Do your thing, Lord. No. Look at Elijah, and I hope you can go home and read and reread this passage. Elijah, the prophet of God, a man of great faith, cries out to the Lord and said, Lord, have you brought this calamity upon this woman? Was this you who did this? Lord, you have brought us into a dark valley. He also doesn't know if his faith can sustain, it during, sustain himself during the real game. He realizes also that he's not playing against 10-year-olds anymore. He is in the real thing. 
And in an action that commentators don't fully understand, and I don't either, three times he stretches himself over the boy's body, an unclean, dead corpse. He stretches himself out over this body, and he says and prays, Lord, for your honor's sake, oh my Lord, let life come back to this boy. Don't shame this woman who trusted my word and gave me bread. Don't bring shame to your name, O Lord. He's not praying because he knows the Lord is going to resurrect this boy. This is the first time in the Bible we see anything like this resuscitation. But what do we read? Friends, the Lord hears Elijah's prayers. He answers prayers and life is given back to the child. The child is revived. And the widow of Zarephath receives again her child, this time with life. And she says that she now knows Elijah was a man of God, and that the word of the Lord, or uh, word of the Lord, is in his mouth, and it is true. This is her conclusion. She learned that she's not in game shape like she thought she was, but in the face of this trial, she learned deep, more deeply than ever she can trust the word of God. This is the perplexing way, though, that our Lord wants to work. Why, why did the boy need to become ill to the point of dying? Why couldn't Elijah heal him when he was just sick? Because of God's incredible love for this one widow. The boy had to die and be given new life that she might know the word of the Lord is completely true. And this is the perplexing way our Lord likes to work. Our Lord's ways are enigmatic. They're perplexing. Countless people have prayed and prayed and feel as though their faith is up against the ropes and they don't receive the answer that they want. But this passage is telling us this, that we can put our full hope and trust in a Lord who might appear to let us down. The safest thing to do is to not play it safe when you're in the midst of a trial, but to cry out to our Lord, don't lay up, don't hedge your bets, say, Lord, what are you doing at this particular time? Because the way our Lord likes to work, as he allows trial after trial after trial to enter your life, so that you learn while you might be pretty good, you might be pretty good at exercising this thing called faith. You don't have what it takes for the real thing yet, but he's not going to leave you there. He's going to train you over and over and over again. The muscles are going to go through tears and rebuild over and over and over again so that you will have the strength to follow through with the calling the Lord has for you. I'm telling you, the Lord's ways are perplexing. I don't know why. He continues to put trials in some of your lives. And I don't know why it feels as though there's no resolution to some of those trials. I don't know why. But I'll tell you this. He is good. And on the last day, you are not going to look at how you were treated and say you were wronged. You will, you, will, you will thank the Lord for the way he worked out his mysterious plans. His word is trustworthy. Hold him to his word. Cry out to him. Beg him. Call upon his name. Call upon his character. Hold him to his word. He can handle it. I assure you of this, in the midst of all this, he's only making your faith more deeply rooted, strengthening your faith for, for an incredible, incredible mission that he has before you. This is how our God works. Listen, I wish I could have been there when Elijah came down the stairs with that boy. I have to believe the boy's exhausted, probably still laying there, but he's breathing. I wish I could have been there when the widow of Zarephath saw her boy breathing again. And I wonder at that point if she knew. That it wasn't her sins that caused this boy to die. I wonder if she learned that no, her son didn't die for the sins of her mother because our God is the type of God who will send his son to die for the sins of his people. 
Our God is the type of God who will send his son to be stretched out over a cross, over a dead corpse of a world, three times. Be sit in this grave for three days that life might again flow into the world. This is what our God is like, and I wonder if the widow of Zarephath understood it at this time. I doubt she fully did, but I think she knows it now. I think at the resurrection, she saw it coming, and she rejoiced in heaven with all the angels and all those who wait for the final resurrection and the new creation. This is our God. This is how he acts. This is how we have to act in a pluralistic age. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for the faith of this widow. We ask that you would strengthen our faith. I know there are people in this room going through trials, and it feels like it will never end. It's just one wave after another, bashing and bashing and bashing. And Father, it's beginning to feel as though you're cruel, that you don't love us, that you're not working out your plan for the good. Father, for the sake of your great name, have mercy on my sisters and brothers and hear their prayers for those who are in that type of situation. But, oh, Father, send to us just enough trials to make us strong enough for the mission you have for us. Knock us down that we might be lifted up again by you. We know you to be a true and good God who only has good plans. We ask this because Jesus rose from the dead and it's in his resurrection. We know there is hope. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.